Hey folks, what you're about to hear is for adults only. It contains descriptions of violence, atrocities, war crimes, sexual violence, and assault. If you start listening to this podcast and it proves too much, please stop. I thank you. Welcome freshmen. Welcome Harvard's class of 2027. You students are about to receive the finest education on the planet. God knows you're paying for it. Harvard's the place where tomorrow's leaders get their start. I can't tell you how many presidents, senators, and congresspeople have passed through these walls. There's a reason Harvard has its reputation. It's been around since 1636. I crap you not. Harvard's 140 years older than the country it sits in. Over the centuries, Harvard's evolved to become the finest liberal arts institution on the planet. We're a proud school that believes free speech and the rights of the underprivileged are sacrosanct. We don't tolerate abuse of weaker, disenfranchised people or anyone else. We have guiding principles, and we fight for them every day of our lives. Don't worry, you can rest assured that every professor you meet uh, here over the next four years is a Democrat. Probably 90%. You won't find yourself in the uncomfortable position of arguing with a Republican. If we learn a professor's conservative, we fire his or their ass. So don't worry, some Matt Getz or Tucker Carlson is secretly employed here. Similarly, uh, we're proudly anti-Semitic. If you see a Jew, call security and we'll have him removed. For centuries, Harvard was closed. For centuries, Harvard was closed to kikes. For some reason, over the last hundred years, some Jews have been allowed to slip under the fence, but that's changing. By the time you graduate, we're hoping to be Jew-free. Now let's sing Harvard's fight song. One, two, three.
Hello, I'm Henry Mark, and welcome to Anti-Semitism, America's Jewish Problem, Episode 1. First things first, I'm a Jew. And ever since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th of this year, this year being 2023, anti-Semitism has gotten worse. So whatever happens in this country regarding anti-Semitism affects me deeply. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, largely shielded from anti-Semitism. One time a kid in my, in my high school asked me for money for the vending machine for a beverage, and when I declined, he called me a Jew. Our school was tiny and exclusive, about 300 kids, whether or not he knew I was in fact a Jew, I have no idea. I'll never know. Uh, the only other time was when I was in my uh, late 20s. Excuse me. Still living in Tulsa, and I was listening to a Sunday uh, night blues show on KMOD-FM in Tulsa that was hosted by a guy named John Richards. I'm oh, sorry, jo John Henry. John Henry was a beloved local DJ in T-Town who done rock and roll revival shows in Tulsa for years. I actually liked it and admired him for his love and knowledge of music. Now he was doing a blues show on Sunday night and he had a guest on and was interviewing him about that guest's guitar shop and all the cool axes he had down there, etc. At one point, Henry said, Hey, if I go down there and stop by and check out all this uh, uh, stuff, will you Jew me down on some of the stuff you got down there? The guest said, Sure! I was in my car listening, and I was so pissed. I drove, I drove to my destination, which was another radio station where I was working, KTOW in Sand Springs. I called KMOD and actually got Henry on, on the phone. He answered the phone himself, and I told him what he said was offensive. He denied it and said he's, he's used that expression his entire life. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. And he wasn't ever, ever going to stop doing that. The next day, I called KMOD and asked to speak to the manager, but I got a sales manager or employee or someone non-accountable or with any authority, and I, I told him what the guide said. The man didn't apologize. He, he, didn't, he didn't seem too interested. Didn't seem to care. I should have gotten the address of the owner or president and written a letter, but I didn't. To my regret. While I grew up in a bubble of comfort, by early adolescence, I, of course, had learned about the history of my people from my parents and in high school, uh, including our planet's history of racism and persecution going back millennia. My father was a first-generation American Jew. His parents immigrants uh, from Stanislavov, Austria-Hungary. Dad bought a radio station in Tulsa, KAKC, in 1962, and we moved to Oklahoma the next year when I was three from the East Coast. I attended Temple Israel Elementary School 
from age four on and was bar mitzvahed there at age 13. That makes me and my siblings second generation American Jews. Three of my four grandparents were immigrants. My mother's father, my grandfather, was also a first generation American Jew. So we Jews don't have to look too far back in the rear view mirror to see bigotry or, or worse. I remember watching news for the footage uh, in high school of Jewish atrocities in World War II. These films showed thousands of bodies, presumably in concentration camps, being dumped into mass graves by bulldozers and other horrors which was heartbreaking, of course. At the same time, I've always been deeply proud of my heritage and that of other Tulsa Jews, like Tim Blake Nelson and his uncle, Tulsa philanthropist and benefactor George Kaiser, who are admired and respected. I went to Holland Hall with Tim Nelson's brother, Mike. We were in the same class. We were in the same class of 1977, Tim Nelson similarly went to Holland Hall. So like I say, we Jews have fire alarms in our DNA. DNA. Sadly, atrocities are nothing new to Jews. I've only learned in the last couple years about a series of war crimes that took place in 1941 in the town my father's uh, parents came from, Stanislavov, in German-occupied Poland, in what was German-occupied Poland at the time, we always knew nobody, for, none of my ancestors survived. But we didn't know any more specifics about what happened to these ancestors until recently. To be clear, America was far more racist and anti-Semitic in the 1930s and 40s than it is now. And Franklin Roosevelt, while not anti-Semitic himself, was a pragmatist and kept a tight lid on the number of Jews who could escape Europe and Hitler to avoid being accused of the helping Jews. It was politically necessary for him to do so, which is heartbreaking from my point of view, because before the war, 50,000 Jews lived in my family's town of Stanislavov. But in 1941, and again, we've only learned this in the last couple of years, that the Nazis built a ghetto in Stanislavov, then herded, herded up to 20,000 Jews there and locked them in there to rot. Even worse, on October 12th, 1941, 10,000 to 12,000 Jewish men, women, and children were marched out of town to a Jewish graveyard there where the uh, Nazis, under the direction of a Gestapo chief named Hans Kruger, had built an open pit, and they massacred them all, shooting them at gunpoint over a 10-hour period and leaving the corpses there in one of the worst mass killings of the war which again is heartbreaking. Chuck Schumer, who was the first Jewish Senate party leader in our nation's history, wrote an eloquent, angry piece in the New York Times on November 29th discussing the recent bump in anti-Semitism. He mentioned a Jewish high school teacher in Queens who told him that she was forced to hide 
in a locked office after student protesters demanded she resign because she had attended a rally supporting Israel. He said that's anti-Semitism pure and simple. Ironically, many Jews like me, Henry, and Schumer are are longtime critics of Israel, and we favor a two-state solution and a Palestinian state. Schumer also also mentioned Islamophobia is on the rise as well, which is equally insidious. Anti-Semitism had already been going up for years in this country, partly aided by social networking and the internet and the silos of hate that web users can enter. But since that day's attack, in which 50 to 100 Jewish women, girls, and men at a music festival were shot, raped, and shot, raped, gang raped, and sexually mutilated, it's only gotten much worse. Notoriously, three major schools, Harvard, Penn, and MIT, were called before Congress to testify about anti-Semitism at, at their schools, and, they, and their incompetence and cluelessness stunned the world. Harvard, in particular, has turned out to be a hostile and unwelcoming place for Jews. The school's governing board, called the Harvard Corporation, decided its president, Claudine Gay, could stay on her job, which is mind-boggling because what Hamas did on that day were war crimes. They used sexual atrocities as a means of war, which is one of the definitions of genocide. Girls and women were mutilated. Their pelvises split apart from sexual assault breasts cut off and items like nails that's right nails inserted into their private parts and they're blaming us Jews for fucking genocide much of the evidence of this has been lost because many witnesses have died or were kidnapped or the victims buried because Jewish law mandates burials happen within 24 hours or survivors were too traumatized to were too traumatized to speak or will need time to heal months or years or they were kidnapped all of which as a Jew baffles and angers me only one president Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania resigned after pressure from its billionaire alumni or or board members and the media. In the wake of these acts of classlessness, all vowed to address anti-Semitism, which is hilarious, since anti-Semitism has been around at these schools, in some cases for as long as these schools have existed. Bigotry can't be cured overnight. But what happened at Harvard in recent weeks was especially troubling. Because whether it was true or not, Harvard's always been education's gold standard. It was considered the greatest school in the country, if not planet. You'd you'd think they'd have the most to lose reputation-wise, being one of the richest schools on the planet with its $50 billion endowment. Dan Sullivan, a Republican senator from Alaska, wrote an angry, eloquent piece 
on December 15th for the Wall Street Journal titled An Anti-Semitic Occupation of of Harvard's Widener Library. The subhead, Claudine Gay, promised to prevent disruptions of the classroom experience. How's that working out? Harvard happens to be his alma mater. Alma mater. He's also a Marine and sits on the U.S. Naval Academy's board. He wrote about Gay's testimony and what he witnessed during a recent visit, which included a school-sanctioned occupation of Widener's reading room by protesters. I start quoting now. I was in Boston last weekend for the Army-Navy game. The day after the game, five days after Harvard President Claudine Gay's disastrous testimony before Congress, I decided to walk the campus to reminisce about my time at Harvard where I earned my undergraduate degree in 1987 and reflect about what had gone wrong at this once great university. I visited places that held significance to me while I was there. St. Paul's Cathedral, our Catholic Church, my freshman dorm, and of course, Widener Library, a monument to learning, study, and contemplation that, that sits like a temple in the middle of Harvard Yard. When I walked upstairs to the famous Widener reading room, I couldn't believe my eyes. Nearly every student in the packed room was wearing a kaffee, flyers attached to their individual laptops as well as affixed to some of the lamps in the reading room read, no normalcy during genocide, justice for Palestine. A young woman handed the flyers to all who entered a large banner spread across one end of the room stated in blazing blood red letters stop the genocide in gaza curious about what was going on i was soon in a cordial discussion with two of the organizers of this anti-israel protest inside uh, of one of the world's great libraries not outside in harvard yard where such protests belong They told me they were from Saudi Arabia and the West Bank. I told them I was a U.S. senator who had recently returned from a bipartisan Senate trip to Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. I mentioned the meetings I had. I I expressed my condolences when they uh, told me their relatives had been killed by Israeli military action in Gaza. One then asked uh, whether I supported a ceasefire in Gaza. I said I didn't, because I strongly believe Israel has the right both to defend itself and to destroy Hamas given the horrendous attacks it perpetrated against Israeli uh, civilians on October 7th. Their tone immediately changed. You're a murderer, one said. You support genocide, said the other. Excuse me? What did you say? I asked in disbelief. They repeated their outrageous charges. I tried to debate them, noting the Israeli Defense Forces don't target civilians and that the only group attempting to carry out genocide is Hamas. But civil debate with these women was pointless. 
As I was leaving Widener Library, they pulled out their iPhones and continued taunting. Do you support genocide? Do you support genocide? The Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee posted some of this exchange on Instagram. As a, as a senator who has been through two election campaigns, I've had plenty of iPhones aggressively shoved in my face by members of radical groups. Nevertheless, I was shocked and again ashamed of my alma mater. All of this, the anti-Israel protests, the big banner, the flyers, the iPhones, the taunting questions took place inside the Widener Library, a revered place of quiet study for tens of thousands of Harvard students and alumni. Imagine if you were an 18-year-old Jewish or Israeli student or even a pro-Israel Catholic like me and you wanted to study for your chemistry final on a Sunday morning. Imagine being confronted by this protest, obviously condoned by Harvard's leadership and commandeered by the Palestine Solidarity Committee. Would you feel welcome in Harvard's most famous library? Would you feel rattled, intimidated, and harassed by the anti-Israeli Banner screaming, stop the genocide in Gaza. As Jason Riley has written, if accusing Israel of genocide isn't defam defamation of Jewish people, I don't know what is. If you were that 18-year-old, would you believe the vacuous statement recently put out by the Harvard Corporation after it decided not to fire gay that disruptions of the classroom experience will not be tolerated? If students were handing out flyers and hanging large beam, uh, hanging large banners in the Widener Library reading room denouncing, say, affirmative action or NCAA rules allowing men to compete in women's uh, swim meets, Harvard leaders would shut them down in a minute. But an anti-Israel protest by an anti-Semitic group commandeering the entire Widener reading room during finals, no problem. Is that what Gay meant when she testified that it depends on the context? Not all university leadership is so craven, morally bankrupt, and afraid of the most vocal, radical sex of their own student bodies. I serve on the board of visitors for the U.S. Naval Academy. The contrast couldn't be starker between the service academies and the Ivy League on issues like civil discourse, so-called safe spaces, trigger warnings, American history, and our unique and, yes, exceptional place in the world. America's so-called elite universities used to be a positive source for our nation's power, strength, and influence. No longer. I believe over the past several weeks, a bipartisan consensus has emerged. It is time for Congress to, to save these important and once respected institutions from themselves and their weak leaders who have lost their moral compass. I intend to work with my colleagues in the Senate to do so. End quote. I couldn't agree more. 
And on December 16th, the New York Times ran an article describing Harvard's anti-Semitism and and Jews' weariness and questioning whether they even have a future at Harvard. I'd like to read from that piece, too. And I start, quote, At Harvard, the rabbi at a menorah lighting ceremony was unusually blunt. It pains me to have to say, sadly, the Jew hate and anti-Semitism is thriving on this campus, Rabbi Hershey Zarchi of Harvard Chabad said on Wednesday. 26 years I've given my life to this community, he said. I've never felt so alone. Just the night before, he told the gathering, a woman passing by the Hanukkah candlelighting ceremony yelled that the Holocaust was fake. When Harvard Chabad hosted a screening of an Israeli military film with footage from the October 7th Hamas attacks, he said the campus police advised him to get security for his family. Even the giant menorah prominently displayed in Harvard Yard was packed away each night, he said, as in past years, to protect it from vandalism. Claudine Gay, Harvard's president, stood nearby waiting to light a candle. As the rabbi spoke, she stared ahead, looking stricken. The uproar over Gay's congressional testimony on whether students would be punished if they called for the genocide of Jews has exposed the deep anxiety, anger, and alienation of many of Harvard's Jewish students, alumni, and faith leaders. In interviews, many Jewish members of the Harvard community describe their growing estrangement from campus. Protesters have have disrupted lectures, shouting through bullhorns that the war in Gaza was a genocide. Anti-Semitic messages have been posted on social media. Some students have decided to check their Zionist beliefs in the classroom and in the residence hall. A few have traded in their uh, kippahs or skull caps for baseball hats. For students who are feeling increasingly isolated, it did not help that many of their Jewish peers had joined the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. The fall semester closed with more tension. The Harvard Corporation, the school's governing board, deliberated for hours on Monday before deciding to resist calls uh, to force Gay's resignation, end quote. I couldn't be more offended by the fact that that President Gay is still on her job. She, she disgusts me. And it's not just Harvard, MIT, or Penn. According to ABC News, the Department of Education is investigating six more schools for discrimination. Tulane in Louisiana, Union College in New York, Cooper Union in New York, University of Cincinnati, Santa Monica College, and Montana State. And it's not just higher education. And it's not just anti-Semitism. Last month in November, the DOE said it was investigating 51 schools and districts nationwide like Cobb County School District in Georgia for discrimination, including Islamophobia. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said in a statement on November 17th, 
Hate has no place in our schools, period. When students are targeted because they are or perceive to be Jewish, Muslim, Arab, Sikh, or any other ethnicity or shared ancestry, schools must act to ensure safe and inclusive educational environments where everyone is free to learn. I agree with the Education Secretary. One more thing. On December 17th, the New York Times ran an op-ed piece by Brett Stevens, who's Jewish. I'd like to quote Stevens about, about how much of this intolerance is being driven by young people. And I start quote, Hate crimes against Jews, which had nearly quintupled in the previous 10 years, also quintupled from October 7th to December 7th, compared to the same period in 2022. Subtext became text. Gas the Jews was the chant heard from protesters at the Sydney Opera House. From the river to the sea, from the quads of once great American universities. The same students who have been carefully instructed in the nuances of microaggression suddenly went very macro when it came to making Jews feel despised. The same progressives who erupted in righteous rage during the Me Too outrage became somnambulant in the face of abundant evidence that Israeli women had been mutilated, gang-raped, and murdered by Hamas. The same humanitarians who cried foul over migrant kids in cages at the southern U.S. border didn't seem particularly bothered that Israeli kids were being held in tunnels or the posters with their names and faces were routinely torn down on New York street corners. All this is likely to get worse. A Harvard-Harris poll conducted this month finds that 44% of Americans ages 25 to 34 and 67% of those 18 to 24 agree with the proposition that Jews as a class are oppressors. By contrast, only 9% of Americans over 65 feel that way. The same generation that received the most instruction in the virtues of tolerance is now the most anti-Semitic in recent memory, end quote. I have no reason to doubt Stevens, and I salute his eloquence. It's a shitty way to end a podcast, but that's all I've got, got for now. Don't worry, I'll be back. I'd like, I would like to thank ABC News... The New York Times and Wall Street Journal for letting me quote them. I'd also like to thank Epidemic Sound for their uh, music. The theme music you're hearing is by The Honeycuts, and I pay Epidemic for the, the use of their song, Freak on Demand, which is awesome. Thank you, Honeycuts. Take care, people. I will see you next time.